Welcome back to the Hikma Collective Podcast. I'm Erica Makalak, and in this mini-season, we're sharing collaborations with amazing public scholars. In this episode, you will hear Dr. Farnas Hawaii talk about her work with many partners and collaborators across the long-term care sector to develop pandemic resilience strategies. Hope you enjoy. Hi there, I'm Eric Makalak, and you are listening to a conversation with Dr. Farinaz Hawaii of the University of British Columbia School of Nursing. In this conversation, Naz talks about her work in the long-term care sector during the COVID-19 pandemic with partners, collaborators, and actors across British Columbia. She talks about how some unintended consequences of pandemic policies have revealed systemic issues in long-term care, and she offers recommendations for addressing these issues. Naz also talks about why this work will remain important long after the pandemic for building resilience in the healthcare sector and improving quality of life and conditions for long-term care residents, families, and healthcare workers. Thanks for listening. Hey, Naz, it's great to have you here. Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Um, my name is Farnaz Hawaii. I am an assistant professor at UBC School of Nursing and a health services researcher. Um, my work um, focuses on um, studying healthy work environments and studying workplace factors that enable nurses and health, health human resources, healthcare providers to deliver quality and safe uh, patient care um, across the healthcare, healthcare spectrum. Um, you know, long-term care, acute care, community care sectors. Yeah. So will you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in this work? Absolutely. So um, when COVID-19 happened, um, the long-term care sector, as you know very well, became the epicenter of um, COVID-19. And um, we know that over 80% of COVID-related mortalities in Canada essentially happened in the long-term care sector. So to mitigate the risk of spreading COVID-19, a series of policies and procedures were introduced in this sector to essentially ensure the health and safety of residents, staff, and family members. And so in uh, 2020, after the pandemic, our team at UBC School of Nursing was fortunate enough to receive a research grant from Michael Smith Health Research BC to essentially evaluate um, whether or not these pandemic management policies and procedures had any unintended consequences for long-term care homes, their staff, residents, and also their families. And so this was um, a study that was conducted in one long-term care home in Vancouver. It was a case study. And so the case study resulted in very many interesting findings. But the gap that we had uh, was that we really did not know if our findings from the case study would be applicable to other care homes in the province. Mm. And so what we did was that um, we successfully received another grant from MSHRBC to work with long-term care home stakeholders and that those include, you know, leaders, operators, residents, staff, families, 
um, to essentially work together and collaboratively develop recommendations in relation to best pandemic management policies and practices for long-term care homes in the province. Hmm. And so just to get a really zoomed out lens of the context, Naz, why was the mortality rate so much higher in long-term care during the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. I personally think uh, it was it was higher due to a variety of reasons. One of them being that, you know, we are dealing with a vulnerable population, the older adult population, you know, just just they have a greater risk of um, not being able to fight the virus and survive the virus. On top of that, I personally think that there are some more long-standing systemic challenges in this sector that may have played a role in in how COVID-19 essentially impacted um, residents' um, health and safety, the rate of mortality, and also the same notion for staff members in terms of contracting COVID and at times even mortality from COVID-19. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, So what in terms of your personal work and um, what drew you to this project, have you always been interested in long-term care? Is that always been an area of focus for you? Um, this is a really good question, Erica. I actually uh, started my work in terms of you know studying healthy work environments and studying those factors that enable healthcare providers, particularly nurses, to deliver quality and safe patient care in the acute care sector. But when the COVID-19 pandemic happened um, and because of what, uh, you know, happened to residents in terms of mortality, in terms of, uh, you know, contracting COVID-19 in this sector, I just felt like there was a need to shift my focus from acute care to the long-term care sector. And that is when we actually started bringing in some of our understanding and expertise from the acute care sector to the long-term care sector. Mm-hmm. And and for you, in terms of making that shift, given your own perspective as a researcher and the network that you had, um, what were some of the most significant adjustments that you had to make to your work to change focus? So it, it really um, meant that I um, needed to listen. I, I really needed to listen to the perspectives and experiences of those in long-term care. I, I needed to have really open ears and, and an open heart to see what their unique experiences are, their, their unique perspectives, their unique challenges. And, and so uh, I, I've really been trying to invite um, uh, a variety of uh, representatives and groups from the long-term care sector to engage in my program of research. Very interesting. And so can you walk us through sort of the journey of this project from the beginning of the pandemic to now May 2022? So back in 2020, we started a study in one long-term care home to essentially evaluate the impact of pandemic management policies and procedures Um, on residents, um, their families, as well as staff, just because we were interested to see if if these pandemic management policies and practices had any unintended 
consequences hmm. for um, providers and users of long-term care home. And so uh, we did have very many interesting findings in terms of how some of these pandemic management policies and practices sort of had some unintended consequences just because of either their nature or because of how they were implemented in the sector. They had some unintended consequences for residents, staff, and families. And so we wanted to work with our stakeholders, long-term care experts, families, residents, operators, staff, to determine how those pandemic management policies and practices could be improved to more effectively manage and deal with the pandemic, um, you know, the current pandemic and also future pandemics and crisis in long-term care homes in the province. So how did you go about studying this? Um, how, did, how did you go about moving this project forward? What was the first step? Very good question. So one of the first things that we did in this uh, project was essentially establishing an advisory group of long-term care experts, including representatives from the BC Ministry of Health, including um, representatives from other long-term care organizations um, like BC Care Provider Association, um, as well as um, LTC or long-term care leaders, managers, providers, residents and even their families. We also had researchers whose expertise was long-term care and seniors care sort of involved and, and included in our advisory group. So we had a re relatively large advisory group, I would say probably about 10 or 15 individuals working very closely and meeting regularly to essentially inform the direction of this research. And so in addition to this advisory group, the project also had um, three components. We started with a survey of long-term care operators to essentially get a sense of, um, you know, to what extent pandemic management policies and practices were implemented, so how frequently, and also what might have been their impact on the health and safety of staff, residents, and their families. And um, so we essentially used the results of the survey then to um, have discussion and dialogue with long-term care stakeholders through a series of five discussion forums, so five virtual discussion forums with each of the five regional health authorities in BC. So we did have a discussion forum with Vancouver Coastal Health. We did have a discussion forum with uh, Fraser Health, and so on and so forth. And then finally, um, we used those discussions to develop a series of recommendations for best pandemic management, and then brought together all of these long-term care experts from all of the health authorities, as well as our advisory group, to reach consensus around these recommendations that, um, you know, we're, we're going to put forth. So um, the team essentially worked together to um, sort of review those recommendations and at times also to make revisions and make suggestions in terms of, um, you know, how, how certain recommendations should be worded. Hmm. And um, what, what were the conversations like? What were some of the things that you learned through these dialogues? 
Absolutely. So um, we essentially, how we started the conversation was, um, you know, we introduced the project and sort of shared some of our key findings from an earlier component of the project, which which was our operator survey, which essentially spoke to, you know, this, this is how frequently pandemic management policies and practices were implemented. And this is their impact on residents, on the health and safety of residents, families, as well as staff. And so it was really interesting to essentially see that our forum participants essentially also echoed a lot of the same and similar experiences um, as to our um, you know, long-term care operators based based on the mm-hmm. survey. Mm-hmm. And then when we actually shared the results of the survey, then we opened it up for discussion and, and conversation and dialogue with the participants in terms of what might be some of the changes that we would like to see in, in some of these pandemic management policies and practices, or how do we go if there are any issues in, in certain pandemic management policies and practices, how do we go about resolving them? If, if we had a chance to start uh, responding to this pandemic all over again, how would we do it? What, what do things look like in terms of pandemic management policies and practices? And what are some of the changes that you would like to see as long-term care stakeholders? And, and so we use some of those conversations and discussions then to actually uh, turn them into recommendations um, mm-hmm. for best pandemic management in, in long-term care. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the recommendations that you think are the most critical? So, I, I mean, we have a series of recommendations. They are, this is a relatively long list of recommendations, but I could probably just give you an example. So, mm-hmm. um, as you might know, um, the strict visitation policy is, is one of the pandemic management policies or strategies that was actually a really significant source of concern and, and frustration for long-term care, um, particularly long-term care residents and families. And so um, the families and residents were particularly um concerned about the fact that the policy was developed um, without or with limited engagement with, with um, you know, families and residents. And as a result, um, made a recommendation for more active involvement of residents and families through their respective councils in the policy development, policy implementation and evaluation. In their perspective, if they were um, or if they had their voice represented at the policymaking table, some of the issues that um, happened as a result of the policy um, would, would not have happened to the same extent. So the recommendation that we have put forth um, as, as a result of some of these discussions, again, is, is to provide opportunities for engaging families and residents in, in policymaking through working with their respective uh, councils. Interesting. So is there a sense in which the stressors of the pandemic have opened up these opportunities to build better human infrastructure moving forward? Absolutely. I I think it 
it certainly took a pandemic um, for us, um, like as a country and also as like provincially in, in British Columbia to be paying attention to some of those shortcomings, long-standing uh, shortcomings in the long-term care sector, some of the issues and challenges that we've been dealing with in this sector for a very long time. I, I think the pandemic, certainly the silver lining was, was that it revealed some of these issues and it sort of created a sense of urgency in, in terms of responding to some of these challenges and shortcomings. Hmm. Urgency in what sense? I mean, of course, the sense of immediate risk, but do you think that this issue has gotten more attention because of the pandemic? I cer- I certainly um, think so. I mean, we've all heard of the stories that came out of long-term care homes in, in Ontario, some, some of the issues in terms of some of the wrongdoings in, in terms of resident care delivery and, you know, the the um, government sort of calling for investigations, so on and so forth. I don't think that without the pandemic, um, we would have taken um, accountability um, for, for this sector, at least to the same extent. Hmm. So long-term care is itself, it sounds like, quite a complicated ecosystem embedded within the broader healthcare sector, which is also very, very complicated. Um, when you think, in the way that you have been trying to map out the pandemic strategies that were put in place across all of these different facilities, how have you broken those strategies down? Do you have categories? Do you have themes? How have you organized the information Really, really good question. So we actually put our pandemic management um, uh, policies and procedures into seven themes and categories. And those include screening, visitation, staffing, infection prevention and control, um, communication, physical layout, leadership and organizational support. And how we got to these seven themes is we used a couple of approaches. The first one being is that we actually created a list of um, pandemic management policies and procedures based on our uh, the findings of our earlier case study. Mm-hmm. And also then we had our advisory group, particularly our stakeholders from BC Ministry of Health and BC Care Provider Association, who have that really deep understanding of pandemic management policies and practices review and, and modify that list based based on their expertise and experience. So um, that that is essentially how we arrived um, to to the seven seven themes of pandemic management policies. Mm-hmm. And within those seven themes, were there ones that were particularly hot button themes in these dialogues? Oh, absolutely, and I would say th- those were. Probably the ones that were really, really uh, like they, they essentially triggered really hot conversation um, were visitation and staffing. Visitation for the visitation policy for residents and families, the staffing policy certainly for operators, uh, providers, and, and also for residents and families because they are the ones at the receiving end of um, care and services from. Um, staff members who are really overburdened and exhausted and and working under really, really um, suboptimal working conditions. And so 
tell us more about the single-site order. What was the single-site order? So the single-site employment policy was a policy that was introduced into the long-term care sector, again, to mitigate the risk of spreading COVID-19. And the policy essentially prevented long-term care workers, particularly nurses and, and care aides, from working in more than one long-term care home during the COVID-19 pandemic. And why was that implemented exactly? So because like the reasoning makes a lot of sense. It, it was implemented because it was a way to essentially, again, prevent the spread of COVID-19 through um, staff members, you know, going from one care home to another care home, you know, the risk of spreading it and taking the virus to um, multiple sites is essentially increased. So the, the solution was essentially to implement this policy that would then say uh, care home workers would have to stay and work in one care home during the pandemic and that way slow the spread. And was the single site order implemented across all healthcare facilities or only in certain ones? So the um, single site uh, policy essentially was uh, limited to long-term care homes. And what was actually really interesting and something that we learned through our discussion forum uh, dialogues was that, um, or actually it was a limitation that came out, a limitation within the policy that came out from our conversations. And that was that uh, the policy applied only to long-term care homes and, and not to um, other, other healthcare organizations like acute care settings like hospitals. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. So as a long-term care worker, I would not be able to concurrently work at more than one care home, but I could concurrently work in my long place of employment in long-term care as well as like an acute care setting. Like huh. even even a COVID positive unit, right? So this this was essentially a limitation of the policy that was identified by our forum participants. Hmm. And and why was it implemented that way? Do we know? I honestly don't know what what the reasoning behind that was, but I suspect, uh, highly suspect, that some of the systemic challenges. Um, that we're dealing with and that we've been actually dealing with for decades um, in in the sector probably influenced um, how the policy was was designed. What do you mean? So by systemic challenges, I essentially mean staffing shortages. The long-term care sector has been dealing with uh, this whole issue of staffing shortages, particularly nursing shortages, and as a result of that, I, I personally think if the policy uh, were to be um, inclusive of acute care sites, that long-term care homes would actually lose a lot of their staff to the extent mm-hmm. that they could essentially not afford uh, continuing to deliver uh, resident care. And so the, the decision was then made to just limit the policy to long-term care homes and, and not other healthcare organizations or uh, sectors, I guess. Interesting. Huh. And, and could you say more about that? What are some of the specific staffing challenges in long-term care? So, uh, I mean, some of the challenges that I could essentially speak to, I mean, just very simply in terms of ratios, 
in, in long-term care, um, typically the ratios that you see in terms of registered nurse um, resident ratios, it's sometimes one to 20, one to 30, one to 40. So th th this is nothing strange for the long-term care sector, as opposed to in acute care sector where you see ratios like one to four, one to five um, RNs per patient. So um, in addition to that, um, I think what one of the other issues or challenges might be that a lot of uh, nursing, um, new nurses, newly graduated nurses actually do not select long-term care homes as their place of employment. And the reason being is that um, one, of, one of their goals is to be developing and building their clinical competencies and skills. And they believe that long-term care homes may not provide some of the same opportunities in terms of skill building um, as acute care settings. Hmm. What kinds of skills are you referring to? So some of those uh, perhaps a bit more hardcore uh, clinical, <laughs> clinical nursing skills that you see in, in acute care settings, blood transfusion, um, um, caring for a patient with tracheotomy, um, maintaining mm -hmm. an IV, so things like that. In long-term care homes, because some of these residents, this is essentially their um, their, their home. This is where they live. Uh, most of the um, nursing care is essentially uh, focused on activities of daily living, medication administration, um, so on and so forth. So you don't really see some of those more hardcore clinical nursing skills. Hmm. And so what were some of the, to bring all of this back to the dialogues, what were some of the recommendations around staffing that came out of them? So one of the recommendations that we made around the staffing was essentially care homes uh, developing a contingency staffing plan that ensures quality and safe resident care, care delivery during potential crises such as outbreaks. Um, because we essentially found that um, the COVID-19 pandemic created a lot of issues in, in terms of um, staffing, and it actually exacerbated some of the staffing shortages, you know, staff because of the single site policy, for example, a lot of care homes lost some of their staff. Uh, on top of mm. that, families and um, visitors were, were prohibited from coming to care homes. And as a result of that, staff were um, sort of faced with um, increasing demands and responsibilities. They were now the ones that had to also care for the psychosocial aspects of resident needs, spending time with them, comforting them, talking talking with them, and just, just making sure that uh, they're not isolated and lonely. Um, on top of that, you know, there, there were the increasing or there are the increasing infection prevention and control practices, staff having to don on and don off PPEs. And so mm -hmm. uh, all of that together, um, you know, increasing needs, but also uh, staffing shortages, staff leaving because of the single site or staff leaving because you know they, they need to be taking time away from work because they're sick with COVID or they have been um, exposed to the virus. And so all of these factors essentially show that care homes must have a contingency staffing plan. 
um, that essentially tells them how to staff, how to ensure adequate uh, levels and appropriate types of staff are available to continue to deliver resident-centered care during potential crises and outbreaks. All right. So in terms of all of those staffing recommendations, um, how do you see the pandemic changing the profession of nursing moving forward? Do you do you think the pandemic has surfaced any new trends or, or changed the direction of the profession in different ways? Really good question. I personally think that um, honestly, again, the silver lining in, in the pandemic for the nursing profession was, was that it just simply um, showed the public the power of nursing. So mm. when the pandemic happened, all of us were really scared. We were fearful of contracting the virus. Most of us stayed home. We protected our family members. We really uh, limited our um, uh, social circle. Uh, we did not go to work. Most of us, you know, continued our work virtually. But the nursing uh, professionals did not have some of the same opportunities. They were actually the ones at the forefront of this fight. Um, and so I, I think as we all of us saw in during some of the earlier waves of the pandemic, um, we, we call them our heroes. Nur nurses mm -hmm. are heroes. And I think it essentially, it, the pandemic really helped speak to some, some of the, um, I guess, significance and importance and, and importance of the prof profession. And I personally think that it, it provided the profession with a greater level of symbolic power. And what do you hope that symbolic power has the power to do? I certainly hope that healthcare leaders and decision makers actively seek the input and the expertise of nurses in terms of policy making and decision making. Again, a lot of these policies that were implemented in the long-term care sector had to be enacted by nursing providers in the front line. So mm -hmm. I think it would be really important to have their expertise included and reflected in the policies that are coming out during crisis. Because again, these nurses are going to be the ones at the forefront of the fight. So we need to be drawing upon their expertise to develop policies that are going to be reasonable and that are going to make sense to nurses. Because they, again, they are the ones that are going to be enacting some of these policies. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic was a chaotic time for everyone. And it sounds like particularly in long-term care, what were some of the decisions that nurses were making on a daily basis? So. Um, the decisions that nurses were making on a daily basis, this is an interesting question. I think the decisions that they were making, just, just I guess in terms of the pandemic management policies, how to implement them, how, to, how the implementation of certain policies would um, negatively impact residents, their families, and also the nurses themselves, and how would they resolve some, some of those, um, you know, Neg negative impacts and outcomes. So I can give you an example. When the strict visitation policy was implemented in, in long-term care, as I said earlier, 
again, a lot of family members and visitors could not really come in to spend time with their loved one, to see them, to comfort them, to talk with them, to socialize with them. And so sort of a negative outcome of that and unintentional impact of that was that we were seeing an increasing level of resident isolation and loneliness. So Mm. stories were coming out of the pandemic from nurses in long-term care sector that were saying essentially nurses were coming to the facility on their own time without any compensation to spend time with these residents, to socialize with them, to read them a book, to paint Mm -hmm. their nails. So just any little thing they could do to just make them feel better because they were not able to see uh, their families or or have a connection with them, especially during those earlier days. So, I mean... I, I think that is very valuable and speaks to just how quickly nurses are able to adapt and, and respond to crises um, and, and pandemics and outbreaks um, onward. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about a shortage of nurses in long-term care, what would motivate more nurses to choose that as their career path? That's a really good question. And I I think um, there are certain things that we could do, um, like as researchers, policymakers, decision makers, to essentially encourage more nurses to choose long-term care as their place of employment. So one of those things um, I I think uh, would would be improving working conditions in the long-term care sector, ensuring that there are adequate and numbers of staff and appropriate types of staff to effectively to effectively meet the day-to-day care needs of long-term care residents. Because if I, um, as a registered nurse, as a newly graduated registered nurse, if I know that if I go uh, for, uh, you know, just in terms of my place of employment, if my first place of employment is long-term care, and if I'm expected to um, provide care and, and lead care activities for 40 or more residents, I think that is a pretty intimidating um, mm-hmm. responsibility, particularly for a new grad. So I would say, you know, just providing mentorship opportunities, mm-hmm. supporting newly graduated nurses, maybe for a few months or even a year so that they essentially get settled in, into their positions, creating body shift opportunities. Um, th- these are some of the examples of some of the things that could be done to essentially promote um, nurses and particularly registered nurses to choose long-term care as, as their place of employment. Those are great insights, Naz. So I want to get to the heart of one thing that I think many of your listeners may be wondering. Um, a lot of the people listening to this podcast maybe thinking or at least hoping that the pandemic is over or this version of the pandemic where we're all in crisis uh, has passed. So from that perspective, why is this work still relevant? That's a really good question. I think um, one of the important um, reasons as to why 
this work is important is because it essentially provides some direction and guidance for the potential redesign of pandemic management policies and practices during the current pandemic, but also direction and guidance in relation to how future pandemics or crisis could be effectively handled in the sector. Another really important reason um, about these uh, recommendations in this work is that they essentially point to the importance of addressing some of those systemic issues in the sector. So if we are essentially speaking to um, like challenges, particular challenges specific to the pandemic, the recommendations essentially realize that um, these recommendations are not going to be effective unless they are effectively implemented and their effective implementation is, is going to require addressing um, challenges and systemic issues in the sector. Let me give you an example. So, mm-hmm. for example, in relation to the single site employment order, yes, this policy was developed and maybe it would have been, it's certainly effective in relation to slowing down the spread of COVID. But there wasn't any consideration given to how it would impact care homes in relation to adequate levels and appropriate types of staff. Because as I, um, you would imagine, and, and because of the policy definition prohibiting staff to one site, it essentially resulted in care homes losing some of their staff. And these care homes were already struggling with staffing shortages pre-pandemic. So the implementation of the policy certainly um, exacerbated some of those staffing shortages. So we have made within our recommendations, um, we have sort of made a broader recommendation that speaks to care homes having to have a contingency staffing plan and maybe to address staffing shortages in long-term care homes and also to ensure equity and fairness, maybe this policy needs to be modified such that staff with the required and relevant vaccines are actually allowed to work in more than um, one outbreak-free long-term care home and also non-long-term care home sites like acute care and hospital settings. So um, we have... In, in our recommendations, we have done our best to essentially consider the unique context of long-term care homes and, and some of the challenges that they have been dealing with for a very long time. Hmm. Naz, what were some of the findings and recommendations around infection prevention and control? Uh, so one of the most important issues or I guess findings in relation to infection prevention and control, Erica, was the fact that operators and staff were really concerned about the frequency and at times even the inconsistency of um, uh, recommendations communicated to them from different organizations. So, mm. for example, um, Uh, communication coming out from the Ministry of Health, from BCCDC saying something, and then another communication coming out, I don't know, maybe within a couple of hours um, with slightly conflicting information in relation to a policy or, or a procedure. And so based on that finding, our forum participants essentially felt like an appropriate recommendation would be that 
infection prevention and control recommendations must be clear, must be concise and consistent. And that means that recommendations actually must be communicated to care homes from a single organization in the province. Mm. Um, because that really caused a lot of challenges for care homes, you know, especially during earlier waves of the pandemic, not knowing which is the most um, appropriate information, what is the policy, and then them having these uncertainties, then creating challenges in relation to how do they respond to staff questions, uh, families' questions, and also residents' questions. So really, they felt like having one organization sending out communication in relation to pandemic management policies would, would really help streamline the information. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that that recommendation is really tied into some of the others that we've been talking about in terms of human resources and communication needs. Absolutely. So we've talked about how the context of long-term care is different from many other contexts in the healthcare ecosystem. But even within long-term care, you have these different homes that I imagine create very different experiences for residents. Could you talk about some of the key differences from home to home that might affect the way that residents in long-term care experienced pandemic? There are certainly differences across care homes in, in relation to how their building is designed, how old they are, where they are located, how big or how small they are, how many beds they have. So that certainly creates some differences across physical layout. But what was um, perhaps a bit common across our um, uh, participants from a variety of care homes was the fact that they recognized that there were certainly challenges and limitations related to physical layout associated with older buildings, things like poor ventilation, poor HVAC systems, having shared rooms, because a lot of the care homes actually have buildings that are on the older side. And, mm. and so that creates challenges in relation to having suboptimal ventilation systems or um, like um, rooms that are shared by two or three or four residents. And, you know, this is this is not a very resident centered um, environment, because, again, these long term care homes are supposed to be home to these residents. And can you imagine living in a room with three or four people um, um, in, in, in the same room and, and just living there for years after years and after years? And so it really has an impact on residents quality of life. So we have essentially just realizing that um, we have to be making a recommendation that is feasible just because of, you know, we're, we're sort of in the context of having finite resources. We mm-hmm. have essentially made a recommendation asking the BC Ministry of Health to work with the health authorities to develop a plan for updating the in- infrastructure of long-term care homes, doing an assessment of their ventilation and HVAC systems just to make sure if, if they're working okay, if they're functional, and for those homes that have some of those older um, suboptimal systems to essentially get, get them replaced. And also in relation to 
um, shared rooms, we have essentially uh, sort of put, put forth a recommendation for the BC Ministry of Health to start outlining strategy for minimizing and eventually eliminating the use of shared rooms in long-term care homes. Just because, again, from the perspective of resident quality of life, I think it would be important. Um, I think it would be an important step. And who are the recommendations for? Who are you calling on? So I would say that these recommendations are mainly di- directed to policymakers and decision makers in, in long-term care because essentially they are the ones that make important decisions in relation to how resident care delivery is organized in the sector and also in relation to how some of these policies Uh, were were developed and the implementation process, all of these um, sort of pandemic management strategies, policies, procedures um, were sent to um, care homes, were developed and sent to care homes from policymakers and decision makers. Hmm. And what what are the next steps for the project, do you think? You have you have developed this report and, and facilitated these dialogues. What do you think is the next step for you and your partners? So the next step for us to essentially uh, distribute very widely the results um, of the uh, project, so our recommendations with our key stakeholders, the BC Ministry of Health, the health authorities that participated in the project, long-term care uh, organizations like BC Care Provider Association and even Safe Care BC, and with even families and residents through their respective council. So we're going to be sort of um, distributing these recommendations to as, as many stakeholders as possible. So in terms of the recommendations that you think are ready for immediate implementation, what are some of the ones that you think are the most important right now? So I think um, in terms of our staffing recommendations, um, we certainly have some recommendations that are more long-term. There are things that cannot be implemented overnight. They require more long-term, long-term planning and um, more coordinated efforts. But we also have more concrete recommendations that could be implemented right away immediately. One of those recommendations is essentially um, uh, implementing a comprehensive and systematic approach to understanding and measuring long-term care resident needs. And there are um, evidence-based tools and approaches out there that do exactly that. And our uh, research team has essentially been very fortunate to receive a CIHR grant to implement this tool that um, exactly does that. It it operationalizes uh, resident needs in relation to five acuity characteristics and three dependency characteristics. And then from there on uses those numbers and scores to inform staffing decisions, just as a way to help staff with their workload management. Hmm. Interesting. And have you, do you have a sense so far of how well that's going? Um, so not a lot uh, because we just we just started the project, but this is a very promising intervention. And the reason being is that we have used it in several acute care settings in the past, 
And mm-hmm. we have really seen um, like really positive outcomes and positive results. We have used it in BC Women's and Children's Hospital, Kelowna Cancer Agency. And right now we're actually using it in Royal Columbian Hospital in three of their surgical narrow and ortho units. And we have also used this tool uh, outside of the province. A few of my colleagues have actually used it in um, emergency departments, so on and so forth. So it is an evidence-based tool. It it works. There's research that backs backs it up, but it's the first time that it's actually being extended to long-term care. And what are some of the considerations that you have to make to apply it in long-term care instead of acute care? So one of the great things about the tool is that it is adaptable to different contexts and to different patient populations, because as you can imagine, uh, the needs of a particular patient population is going to be different in, in across different specialties. So if you're in labor delivery versus in a surgical patient versus an ortho patient versus a cardiac patient versus a long-term care resident, your needs are gonna be different. And so the tool essentially provides the opportunity or it actually encourages um, the care team to adapt it for their um, patient population, in this case, long-term care residents. So we're gonna be working very closely with the um, long-term care uh, providers to essentially adapt the tool for uh, their unique context and based on the needs of the resident population. Mm-hmm. That's really exciting. Uh, what is your hope for the tool? How, how, what possible impact could it have? I certainly think that, um, like, I, I certainly hope that it, it will provide some, it, it alleviates some of the issues in terms of workload that the staff have been dealing with in long-term care, that it alleviates um, some of their stress, that it ha- provides them with opportunities or it supports them to provide a more effective resident care, that they have the time and the ability to um, better meet the needs of the resident population. And there is certainly, I'm, I'm very optimistic in that. I mean, there are systematic reviews and systematic reviews are a very high level of evidence. They're very rigorously done that essentially support that the use of the tool is associated with more positive patient, staff, and organizational outcomes. Hmm. So in the way that you talk about all of your work from the dialogues to the implementation of this tool, you talk a lot about all of the different kinds of people that the work could benefit and also all of the different kinds of people from decision makers to residents and families uh, that you work with to move this work forward. Would you tell us a bit about your approach to knowledge translation? Absolutely. So I have a very collaborative approach. The approach, the particular approach that I use is integrated knowledge translation in which you work very closely with um, stakeholders, with partners, with those individuals who are going to be impacted um, as, as a result of your work and as a result of the issue at hand. And you work very closely with them. They are really equal partners throughout the research process, you bring in their expertise, you invite their um, input and actually incorporate it into your decisions throughout the research. 
you know, from formulating your research questions to data collection, recruitment, and uh, believe it or not, even um, in terms of interpreting the results. So what does a particular um, finding mean in, in relation to um, those in the front line, leaders, staff members? Like, how do they go about interpreting a certain a finding? So you really have them involved throughout the project as equal partners, as researchers. So... Tell us how your approach to knowledge translation played out in these virtual dialogues. Absolutely. So um, we actually, uh, in the project, we started the project by establishing an advisory group of long-term care experts with representatives from, you know, the resident group, family member group, um, operators, leaders, managers, providers, um, having partners from um, the BC Ministry of Health, BC Care Provider Association, researcher groups. So we did have a relatively large advisory group whom we worked with very closely throughout the project to inform the direction of the project and in every step of the process, sort of in uh, consulting with them and obtaining their input. But on top of that, uh, we had the discussion forums and the discussion forums, again, were open to um, all long-term care um, members. So anybody affiliated with long-term care, whether they were leaders, nurses, residents, family members, um, staff members, they were essentially uh, invited to participate in discussion forums with the four health authorities, Interior Health, Vancouver Island Health, Fraser Health, and Vancouver Coastal Health Authorities. And so what we did was after we presented the findings of our uh, operator survey, we essentially invited um, participants to comment and share their experiences and share their perspectives. And they could, you know, we've, we've sort of um, adopted a very flexible approach. They could just unmute themselves and speak to us. Um, they could write their comments in the chat box. And we even like state um, after our discussion forums were ended, we actually stayed on for a few minutes extra, just in case there were any participants that just wanted to have a private conversation with us. And um, we also, on top of all of that, we invited participants to uh, reach out if there were any other comments and uh, sort of input that they wanted to share with us to feel free to do that. And believe it or not, Erica, we actually did have quite a number of our forum participants personally reach out to me to share mm -hmm. additional comments and input that they did not um, recall during the forum. And mm -hmm. so they took the time to essentially share that with us through email. Hmm. And how did you take all of that input and turn it into these recommendations? So there was quite a, uh, like, this was a very um, complex process because as you can imagine, we had lots of input from many people from uh, the four health authorities, we also had the input of our advisory group. We had, um, you know, the, the results of the survey. And so we had to bring all of that together to um, create our recommendations. And so what we did was that during our final discussion forum, we then took uh, the recommendations that we had created 
based on what we heard during you know these these discussion forums and the survey and advisory group consultations we took our recommendations to um, this final virtual debrief and provided opportunities for long-term care members, um, our, our diverse group of participants to have uh, a say in, in terms of are these worded right? Is this how we want to approach this issue? Is this really the recommendation that we want to be making in relation to this policy? So really providing opportunities for people to share their comments, it's a safe environment, a free environment, ensuring to invite them to, um, you know, provide input, participate, and, and provide alternative modes of participation. If anybody's not mm-hmm. comfortable with, you know, just verbally communi- communicating their feedback to provide opportunities, you know, just in terms of like putting their comment in the chat box or even um, reaching out reaching out to us via email. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that one of the things that makes accessibility especially challenging during a pandemic is working with long-term care residents on signing into a Zoom call. Were there any special measures that you took to make sure that everyone who wanted to participate could? Absolutely. So we actually asked, um, uh, so when, when we invited residents, we essentially reached out to them for those that had registered to participate in our discussion forums, they actually personally reached out to them and asked them if they needed support with with connection. And if in a few instances, they essentially said yes, that they they would require support in terms of connecting to Zoom, so on and so forth. And then we actually contacted their care home and found the staff member who could then support them with uh, technology-related issues. Nice. Um, and so how many residents, do you know offhand how many residents came to these dialogues? We had about five residents participate um, in, in all of the health authority as well as the final virtual debrief. Hmm. And how many people total came to these dialogues? So the total, I would say it's probably around 60 or 70 people wow. uh, together. But I mean, there there were some people who were participating in um like the health authority discussion forum, as well as the final virtual debrief. But overall, I think there were probably about 60 or 70 people. Mm-hmm. And that's in addition to all of the people who would have provided input through your operator survey. Exactly. And we had about 20 people that respond to our operator survey. Mm-hmm. And the operator survey, um, just to have a sense of the context, how what did that look like? How was that administered? What kinds of questions did it ask? So the operator survey essentially um, asked about um, pandemic management policies and practices in relation to seven domains, um, COVID-19 screening, um, the strict visitation policy, staffing, infection prevention and control procedures, communication, physical layout, leadership and organizational support, particularly in relation to how frequently were you able to, or how effectively were you able to implement these pandemic management policies and practices? And what were their impact on the health and safety of residents, family members, 
and staff members? And what were their impact on mitigating the risk of uh, spreading COVID-19? And so we essentially had this survey sent out to a purposefully selected sample of um, care homes. So I believe there were about 100, 100 care homes that were purposefully selected by our um, advisory group members. And so we sent our survey to those individuals obtaining their email addresses and contacts through uh, the BC Ministry of Health and BC Care Provider Association and essentially inviting their operators to complete our survey. Hmm. And between the survey and the dialogues, was there anything that really surprised you? I have to say that the one thing that really surprised me was just um, the resilience, the resilience Mm. of everybody within long-term care, staff, providers, leaders, residents, family members dealing with the challenges, the pandemic, uh, the challenges within the long-term care sector, and also challenges of the pandemic management policies and practices. It was honestly really, really inspiring to see how everybody adapted very quickly and and worked together um, to to survive the pandemic and survive it well. Hmm. What were some of the creative strategies that people in long care developed to make it through some of the challenges of the pandemic? Yeah, so one um, example, um, Erica, could be the fact that really care homes adopted um, various ways of communicating with residents, um, family members, as well as staff members. So not just sending emails, but also um, phoning people if they had to, sending letters, posting on social media, uh, making in-person visits to just make sure that everybody received those important updates in relation to pandemic management policies is an example. Another example I could give you in relation to the visitation policy, for example, when families could not come in to the facility as a result of the policy, essentially using technology, staff members using technology, iPads, iPhones, uh, smart devices to um, make sure that residents and families have a way to stay, continue to stay in touch and connected. Mm -hmm. When we think about all of the different evolutions that all of us had to make in the way that we communicated during the pandemic, it sounds like this would be particularly challenging in the context of long-term care. I'm wondering, in the conversations that you had through these dialogues and through through other means, are there recommendations that have come out specifically related to communication? Absolutely. One of the really important challenges in relation to communication for long-term care operators and staff was that um, they had received communication in relation to some of the policies and practices um, at the same time as as the members of the public or without really advance notice, they were told to implement 
um, some policies and practices. And so they were not, because of that, they did not really have the necessary resources to effectively implement. And it just created lots of challenges for them. So one of the recommendations that we've made uh, is, is around the communication process that it should be streamlined to ensure that essentially care homes are given enough time to appropriately implement a, a new or modified policies particularly with, with respect to policies that require um, proactive planning and, and resource allocation. Uh, as an example, the single site employment policy required a lot of work for care homes in terms of determining uh, you know, which, which staff members were working at multi-sites, multi-care homes, doing a lot of um, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, surveys and, and interviews with the staff to find that information out because care homes prior to the pandemic did not have a list, a clear list of their staff members' place of employment. Hmm. What are some of the recommendations that you think are most important to highlight coming out of this report? So I think we already talked a bit about um the visitation policy, the uh, staffing situation, um, the communication issue. The other important uh, pandemic management strategies, leadership and organizational support. We certainly know that the pandemic and pandemic-related stressors created lots of mental health-related um, challenges for staff as well as leadership. So one of the other recommendations that we're essentially making is, is for long-term care homes to establish workplace mental health supports and interventions for their workers. And special attention must be given to uh, certain groups of workers, including newly graduated um, you know, healthcare workers, nurses, as well as those who might be a bit more novice in, in managerial and leadership positions. Because I think um, the leader and manager groups are certainly an over, overlooked population in, in the context of the pandemic in that they were the ones that really orchestrated um, how the sector and how care homes responded to the pandemic, how policies were implemented. And they were really being pulled from different directions. You know, they had to respond to the concerns of staff members, to the concerns of family members, residents. So they had all of these demands and added demands and responsibilities placed on them and also having to deal with, um, you know, uh, policies that were coming from the ministry, dealing with health authority, uh, 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 sort of uh, requirements, instructions, so on and so forth. So they are really in need of mental health support. And so we need to be mm. thinking of ways and, and strategies that could essentially be implemented in the sector to protect the mental health of our long-term care leaders, because we certainly don't want to lose them as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hmm. My One of my senses from all of the recommendations that you've been talking about is that in a sense, these recommendations are, you know, to thematically oriented to consider something like staffing, consider improving a particular policy, but it's not on the level of do this, this, and that. It's on the level of take this component of our context seriously. 
and talk to the people who have been there to really develop policies that will build resilience across the healthcare ecosystem moving forward. Um, Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I think one of the most uh, important overarching themes that we see across their recommendations is um, that we need to be responding to challenges, to pandemic management policies and practices in collaboration with with, uh, key stakeholders, whether they are in the staff group, leadership group, family group, resident group, we need to be inclusive of their perspective and we need to make sure that strategies that and interventions that we introduce to the sector essentially reflect their needs. Mm-hmm. And when when people talk about that kind of inclusion in decision making, they often use this metaphor of creating a seat at the table. Um, but in this context, Naz, what are the tables that we're talking about? So I would say, uh, like, really, these recommendations, Erica, are for um, policymakers and decision makers, um, and and those would be within the Ministry of Health, within the health authorities in in the province, and also with with the leadership of long-term care homes, because they are the ones that are really in close contact with the BC Ministry of Health, with some of the other long-term care organizations, with the health authorities, and sort of everybody working together to ensure that the policies and and the procedures that are developed for the sector um, during the pandemic and also uh, beyond that are are reflective of the needs of the users and the providers of the long-term care. Naz, these dialogues and this whole initiative has covered such a richness of information in such a complicated space. As listeners are processing everything that you're sharing here and reading over your recommendations, um, once people take out their headphones, finish listening to this episode, what's the next step? So the next step for our team is essentially to share the results as as widely as possible with key stakeholders, um, the BC Ministry of Health, the participating health authorities, um, long-term care organizations like uh, BC Care Provider Association, Safe Care BC, long-term care homes, and also with families and residents through their respective councils. I think by the way of raising awareness about these recommendations that we're going to sort of keep each other accountable in Mm -hmm. in terms of implementing um, these recommendations, um, hopefully in the near future. Mm -hmm. And a year from now, if all of this work has been successful, what do you expect to see? I hope that, um, you know, that at least some of these recommendations um, are effectively implemented and that we actually see an improvement in in residents' quality of life, in staff's um, mental health and well-being, in um, working conditions of long-term care homes, in how families are um, sort of at the end of the or at the receiving end of the care um, and, and essentially just having improved outcomes for various stakeholder groups and also for long-term care homes as a whole. 
Mm-hmm. And if decision makers want to connect with you to get more involved in the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to reach out? I would say um, they they can essentially either search my name online or send me an, and just I guess send me an email. My my contact information would be available both on the recommendation booklet and also through UBC School of Nursing. Mm, great, Naz. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Erica. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Farinaz Hawaii of the University of British Columbia School of Nursing. Naz's work has been advanced in collaboration with partners, collaborators, and actors across British Columbia and has been supported by the Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research. This podcast was produced by Hikma Strategies. I'm Erica Makalak, Hikma's founder. Production oversight by Sophia Van Hees, our creative director. And the original music you're listening to now was composed by our artist in residence, Matthew Tomkinson. Thanks for listening.